ready for God's word. Amen. Amen. Listen, God's word is important, and today we're going to lay a foundation for the entire series. We're going to get in God's word, and we're going to jump around a little bit, but because I want you to see that God's word talks about this subject throughout. It's not just in one place. It's actually a theme that you find throughout God's word. And you say, well, pastor, what is the sermon series called? Oh, it's super simple. Who am I? Who am I? I want you to ask that question of yourself right here in this moment. Ask, who am I? Now, some of you may say, who am I? And others might say, who am I? Some of us are more confused than others. Some of us don't realize we're confused. We think we're on the right track. And we need some help. I'm, I'm going to try to help you if you let me. You say, Pastor, how can you be so arrogant? It, it's not me. I'm going to point you to God's word. Amen. And we're going to help each other by God's word. And so if you don't like the title, you might vote with my family. My family looked at the title and said, what? I don't like that. But it... it it doesn't really matter what they think. <laughs> Amen. We're going we're gonna to put on there what, what, what God put on my heart. And the reason I put this on there, because this is a question that one of my heroes of the faith asked. And maybe you can relate to Moses, because Moses asks this question. And the question deals with identity. Identity. I want you to think about this with me for a second. How important is identity? Throughout life, how important is identity? You know, this is a subject that we keep grappling with, and just when we think we've done, we're done with it, it just keeps coming up. People are talking about, we need to clearly be able to identify who votes in our elections. I'm just, just saying. Don't know how you feel about it. Don't know if you think that's important. But it's important enough that it's talked about all the time. How about this? The other day I, I heard uh, one of the macro economist that I listened to was saying, we are going to experience such a difficult time in 2024 with identity that we will emerge from 2024 needing to deal with the subject of identity regarding AI. Because AI will begin to influence every aspect of our life, especially the political process of 2024. And swaying people and moving people and, and social, uh, I don't know what, I, I, I'm losing the word, but it's a, it's a social influence where, where these programs and these programmers are going to be able to manipulate society. Therefore, we're going to need an identity process by which we can identify clearly who's human, who's not. What is being produced by a human? What is being produced by a bot? You say, oh, pastor, is it that important? I don't know. I'm just telling you what I've read, what I'm studying, what I'm seeing. And what I understand is that identity is so important. You know, it's interesting because the other day I was looking through some old photos. I've been, I've been organizing all my photos and kind of taking them off of zip drives in different little places where I've had them, trying to put them all in one place. And I was noticing something about myself. I was rather good looking. 
And, 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 it, and it was because I had hair. And I go, wow, look, this is back when I had hair. And I had no idea that my identity was so wrapped up in my hair. I almost feel like a different person. How about the clothes we wear? It's our identity, and we're always asking ourselves, from the minute we have an understanding of who we are, what do I mean by that? The minute we have consciousness of of our being, we start an understanding that we are someone, we start asking, who am I? Isn't that true? And we still ask that, who am I? And based on how you answer that question is how you live. If you think you're smart, you're going to act smart. If you think, listen to me very closely, that you're responsible, you're going to act responsibly. If you think you're a procrastinator, guess what you're going to do? If you think you're a loser, guess what you'll do? Mm. If you think you're a saver, you'll be a saver. We really do act according to who we think we are. Identity is super important, and it, and it kind of focuses around some questions. You know, I'm, I'm, I was thinking about this, and these are the questions we ask typically when we, when we meet someone, and, and no sooner than I preached this in first service, we went out in, in, in between first and second service, and I met someone that was visiting with us, and the first thing I said is, where are you from? Isn't that what we ask? Who are you? Tell me about yourself. The other day, I, I sat down with uh, Pastor John Abraham, who was the pastor over at Rosanke. We had a beautiful lunch last week. And I said, tell me about yourself. Who are you? And I got to hear his story. And it's a beautiful, amazing story. And I was so warmed and glad that I got to take the time to do that. Because this is important. Who are you? Who are your folks? Come on, how many of you know that's important? Who are your folks? What are you saying when you say that? I can remember people used to ask me that when I was younger. They'd say, who are your folks? Who are your people? Who are your folks? Who's your daddy? Who's your mama? What is that saying? What are they wanting to know? You know, I never understood until now that I'm older and I meet a younger person. I'll say, are you from Bastrop? Who are your folks? Are you from the Williams here? Are you from the Petersons from here? Are you from the Smiths from here? Are you from... This area, do I know your folks? Why is it important to know someone's folks? Because it's been said that the apple doesn't fall too far from the... You say, oh, pastor, I'm way different than my folks. There's a reason. You made a choice. But you have to be careful because this idea of where we're from is what we're going to talk about. This idea of identity is so important. And we're going to cover these questions and we're going to cover three basic basic. Uh, um, points. Now, these basic points won't take us very wide, but it'll take us deep. Are you with me? And so it's not going to be a very fun kind of practical message. It's going to be more of a theological, philosophical, deep message. But what I'm doing is I'm laying a foundation for what we will build uh, during this series. Now, the series will take us to the end of the month, and then uh, about February, maybe the second week of February, I'm going to switch, and we're going to go into relationships. And we're going to talk about love, and we're going to talk about how to make relationships work. And so if you're a young couple, anyone young in their marriage, raise your hand. Young in your marriage, come on, just raise your hand high. I'm going to invest in you. How many of you are saying, I'm not young in my marriage, but I want to make my marriage better? Come on, raise your hand. I'm going to talk to you. 
How many of you are here today and saying, oh, it's time for me to check out because I'm single? (laughs) Can I tell you, I'm especially going to focus on you. God has put you on my heart this February. I want to talk to my singles. I want to encourage you and let you know that God has an amazing plan for you. And I'm going to coach you. I'm going to share some things with you that I've learned through the years. And specifically from God's word, how you can make your single, your single position in life really count for God. And we're going to fix a few of you up. We're going to try our hand at matchmaking. So show up. We'll get an idea of, I'm just kidding. Our couples are like, yes. Isn't it funny? When you're a couple, you always want to mix. You always want to uh, matchmake. And when you're single, you're like, no. Listen, I'm not going ma- to match make. Come on, we're going to bless you. Amen. We're going to bless you. Come on out. Uh, these are the questions, or these are the points we're going to cover today. God's son or daughter in Christ and not of this world. These points answer the question, who are you, who are your folks, and where are you from? And I want to remind you, and I want to share something with you of a story we heard, and it it swept across America of a man called Benjamin Kyle. Now, let me tell you about Benjamin Kyle. He was without his identity for over 10 years. 10 years, from 2004 to 2015. Had no idea who he was. Why? Because this is his story. He was found in a suburb right outside of Savannah, Georgia, in 2004, by a woman who was going out to take the trash out at Burger King and found him destitute, completely stripped naked, covered with ant bites all over, looked like he had been beaten as well, and he was out there, no idea who he was. She thought he was dead, and so she calls the cops, they come out, they render aid, they take him to a hospital, and while in the hospital, listen to me very closely, they realized the man had amnesia. He had no idea who he was. He had completely forgotten with no identification on his person. They were stuck, but they thought, well, surely there'll be a missing report, a missing persons report that will come in. There'll be someone asking about him. This isn't that big of a community. And when nothing came, They began to worry some, and he did too. He eventually took on the name Benjamin Kyle because he got tired of the the hospital staff calling him BK Joe. What does BK stand for? Burger King Joe. So he thought, well, I like the initials, Benjamin Kyle. You know, The news media caught hold of his story and they publicized it near and wide. He made morning programs. He made evening news. He even got on the Dr. Phil show where they were trying to figure out, who are you? Now, I want you to think about this with me for a second. Isn't this story bizarre? But how would you, how would you live through something like that if tomorrow, all of a sudden, you woke up behind some fast food joint, completely stripped naked of who you were, and having no memory of your friends, your family, your loved ones, and your life before that moment? So here, you take it for granted that you are who you are. And that you have a past. You believe you have a future. But what if that was stripped from you? You say, oh, pastor, that would be horrible. That would be a nightmare. Anyone? 
Oh yeah, it would be a nightmare, but can I tell you something? The enemy is trying to do that to you every single day. He is dead set on having you forget who you are so that he can render your life a nightmare. How so? Well, the Bible says he comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and he wants to destroy who you are in Christ. He wants you to believe a lie. He wants you to believe that you're something far less than Christ has given you life to be. Far less. You say, but the enemy? How does this happen? Well, it happens one of three ways, or maybe all three of these three. What do I mean by that? I mean, he himself, the enemy, he uses his worldly system, and then he uses our flesh against us. I want you to think about this. Let's think about this worldly system. How does he use culture to help you confuse your identity? Anyone? How about music? How does he use music to confuse the identity of our youth? Oh, every day there's music being pumped out in this culture, telling our kids, telling you and me that we're something other than we are. Trying to get us to feel something, trying to act tough, trying to be who we're not called to be, trying to to put in our minds that we're supposed to be this way or that way. How about the rap songs? How about the, the, the country music? How about the rock music constantly telling us how we should treat women or how we should treat ourselves or how we should look at ourselves, how we should respond to a heartbreak, how we should... Isn't that the truth? You say, well, that's just for the men. No, now these songs are targeting women, asking the ladies not to put up with it and to be predators in their own right. Use your sexuality to get what you want. Is that what you're called to be? Oh, well, that's just the music, Pastor. But the television programming is so much better. It's so much better. You don't have to worry about the television programming. Did you hear what you said? It's television programming. It's telling you the vision and programming your mind against what God has for you. Oh, it's constantly being put out there. Well, that's just the television programming, and that's just the music. But the social media, that's where I go. That's nice and safe. Oh, yeah, social media is constantly talking to you, constantly trying to have you be someone you're not to impress people you don't know. Isn't that the truth? And constantly trying to you to have to live this fake life so that you can be like other people or have this perception of your life so that one day maybe you can attain to it. No, it's constant. It, it, that's what the enemy uses. You know what else he uses? Not just the culture, but the people inside that culture that make up the culture. And how many of us have had people speak over us a lie? People that are supposed to love us or care for us, or maybe people that we don't know, but they're in authority over us and they've spoken lies. I can remember being a kid and I had a teacher told me I'd never be good at math. In second grade, I had a teacher tell me that I would never learn to read, would embarrass me in front of the class. And so for many years, I would have a hard time reading in public. I would just shut down. And I'd look at a word and it would just get jumbled up. And so it's interesting because now sometimes that comes out, but I just press through it because that's not who I am. Amen? I am the righteousness of Christ. And so it's interesting because I've realized something, that these people 
that speak over other people a lie, it's because they're hurt. And the enemy has used sin to hurt people. And now hurting people hurt people. Can I say it again? The enemy has used sin to hurt people so that hurt people will hurt people. Does that make sense? And we just keep hurting one another. You say, Pastor, well, what should I do with that? You have to understand who you are in Christ. And he wrote it down in a love letter so that you wouldn't forget it. So that you wouldn't forget it. Now I look back over my life and I see even when my parents said things they probably shouldn't have said. It was because they were dealing with their own hurt. And we're all on this journey. And I have to learn to say, dad, mom, teachers, I get it. You did your best. But I'm going to put that aside and I'm going to let Christ speak supreme in my life so that I may be exactly who God has called me to be. And I'm going to let him by faith, by faith, accomplish his good work in me. Amen? No, I don't hold it against them. I don't get bitter because when I get bitter and I get resentful, I'm just getting stuck. Lord, I let that go. And in Jesus' name, I want to walk in freedom. Do you hear me? This is so, so important. And so we're going to lay a foundation about who we are in Christ. Who are you really in Christ? Are you with me? I'm trying to get my stage set here. I'm, I'm like... So don't be a Benjamin Kyle. Know who you are. In fact, I love what one of my, my favorite children's authors, and, and I hope he's okay. I mean, every day it seems like they come out with more craziness about different people. So I, as far as I know, he was fine. He, <laughs> be who you are and say what you feel because those who mind don't matter. And those who matter don't mind. Dr. Seuss, isn't that true? Isn't that true? And so I want to take you to where God kind of talks about this just straight on. And it has to do with one of my heroes in the faith. It has to do with Moses. I want you to think about Moses' life. His life was threatened when he was a baby. His parents, to save his life, put him in a basket and send him down the Nile River. Are you crazy? The biggest crocodiles in the world are in the Nile. And they sent him down the Nile. But how many of you know when God is with you? Come on. If God be for you, who can be against you? And so I can imagine this treacherous little path down the Nile was led by the hand of God. The family of, of Pharaoh found, finds him and he grows up in the palace until one day he is excommunicated for having... Uh, defended a Hebrew slave, he's excommunicated and banished from the kingdom. He's out now in the desert. He's, he's approaching 80 years old, and he's in the desert as a sheep herder. So his life has gone from the White House to the poor house, and he has gotten comfortable in who he is, and who he is is not a prince. I'm a sheep herder. That's who I am now. I'm comfortable with it until one day a bush catches his attention. Now, pastor, wait a minute. You're out in the wilderness, kind of the desert area in that, in that region, and a bush catches your attention? There's bushes all over, but this bush is on fire. Now, how many of you know when you set a bush, a, dry, a dried up dead bush on fire, it burns quickly? How many of you know if it's a green bush, it doesn't burn? Isn't that true? 
this the hard way. I can remember when we were building our house. We were in our early 20s, and we were building a home, our very first home. We decided to build. So we found some lots there in Tahitian Village. We had a little acre, and we started to build our home. And there was debris and stuff all over. I was eager to clear the lot, so I started clearing. I had some dried up uh, cedars. How many of you know you chop cedars first? That's like the golden rule in Texas. Just so we started chopping cedars like crazy, and we had them all piled up. And I decided, Josh, I was going to burn them. So I start to burn. I get everything ready. My uncle comes along and says, what are you doing? I said, I'm going to burn. He says, oh, no, you're not. You're going to burn the whole neighborhood down. You need to dig a burn pit. I said, a burn pit? So I started digging the burn pit, and uh, three hours later, he comes to check on me, and I'm like this deep. It's hard rock out there. So he says, look, I've got a guy in the area. He installs septics for us. I'm going to send him over, and with his backhoe, he'll dig you a burn pit. So he, Claude Hoffman dug me a huge burn pit. It was beautiful. I started throwing everything in there. I loaded that burn pit to the max, and I lit that baby. Come on, how many of you just love fire? It's like power. Oh, 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 oh. You know, and it starts burning and crackling. And I noticed something right away, Bob. I noticed that if I threw a dead cedar bush in there, it loved it. The fire just was like, feed me. Oh, and it would just grow. So I started throwing as many as I could. I threw so many. I mean, flames were going everywhere. I got carried away till my uncle shows up again. He's like, what are you doing? He says, listen. I said, yeah, the fire sounds amazing. He says, there's another one. And it was in the back in the Tahitian village forest. I'm like, oh. Then I see another one. We go out there. We're trying to put it out. He says, get your water. I said, they haven't hooked up the water. What are you talking about? <laughs> so I run across the street. Kid you not. And I'm banging on Mr. Wilson's um, um, door. And I'm banging, I'm banging. He comes out in his tidy whities He goes, Robert? Oh. He says, get my water hose quickly. I get the water hose. I go out there. By the, by the mercy of God, the fire turns off. But I learned something that day. I learned something that when a bush is dry and ready to burn, it doesn't last very long before it's completely consumed. I mean, it's like that. And that's what saved me because it went up as fast as it could and then it just died down to nothing and I could put it out with the water, water hose pretty quickly. And thank goodness there was no wind, that kind of thing. So anyway, I saved Tahitian. Actually, God saved it. <laughs> I put it in peril, and then God saved it, right? And that's, and, but, but you say, what does this have to do with the message? It has everything to do with the message, because I know one thing. After 20-something years at that point, I learned something. After 80-something years, Moses knew that a bush doesn't stay lit very long. And so he's watching this from afar, and it just keeps burning. So it draws his attention, and as he walks up, God begins to speak to him. And so what was God saying to Moses in the bush? I am not natural. Don't put me in this world. I'm from outside this world, but I've invaded your time and space to give you an assignment. Get that deep in your heart. I'm teaching a lot of deep stuff. God is saying, I've invaded your time and space to tell you I love you and to give you an assignment. And so he begins to give Moses his assignment. And Moses immediately says this, who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Can I ask you, have you ever asked God, but who am I? Can I tell you, we will all be tempted to ask that. 
Because there's something within us that feels insecure. Where does that insecurity come from? It comes from the fact that we are not God. Now, I get it. Modern day agnosticism and atheism wants to, wants to desperately become God. Because it, they think they can, they can solve that insecurity by just claiming to be God. And doing away with God. It doesn't solve anything. Because at the end of the day, you know, and I know, and we all know our limitations. That we can only see two feet in front of our nose. You go, really? I'm saying you cannot see around the corner. You don't know what tomorrow holds. But you can know who holds tomorrow. You can know who holds tomorrow. And so, so Moses says, who am I? You say, is that the only place that this that this theme is found? No, no, throughout Scripture, you have this idea of who am I? You know, it's interesting because if you go to the New Testament, one of my favorite passages is Jesus. In Matthew 16, when he comes to the region of Caesarea of Philippi, he asks his disciples, saying, who do men say that I am? The Son of Man? Who do men say that I am? The son of man am. So they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others say Jeremiah or one of the great prophets. So then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the... Notice... Notice, why is Jesus pushing this question of who do you say that I am? Because at the end of the day, he understands more than anyone how important identity is because he's the creator of all. And he understands, do they have my right identity? Because in order for them to to accomplish and to make it through what they're about to go through, see, the enemy is about to come at him with full throttle, with everything he has. Not only is the enemy about to come at him, but he's going to use this worldly system to come at him. And then he's going to use their own mind and their own flesh against them. And they're going to have to know beyond a shadow of a doubt who I am. And if they know who I am, then they can make it. But if they waver on who I am, they are toast. They're done. This is so, so important. So Jesus is saying, listen, who does the world say that I am? Now notice, he, he puts that out there because he's trying to get them to understand the world always has an opinion on who you are. Isn't that true? The world always has an opinion on who you are. Well, you're not smart, or you're not this, or you're this, or you're that, or you, you're, you're just a class clown, or you're just the black sheep of the family, or you're just, come on, how many of us have heard a ton of things about what the world says we are? The world is always talking about who we are, but God quickly brings the discussion to, who do you say that I am? Now notice, why did Jesus bring the discussion to, who do you say that I am? It's because he's saying to them, look, the world doesn't know me, but you know me. Why? Because I called you close to me, and for the last three years, we have been in relationship. And based on what you've seen with your own eyes, based on what you've touched, based on what you've heard, based on what you've experienced, who am I to you? Well, they're all thinking about it, and Peter says, you are the Christ. 
oh, snap. Peter, the one that was always like jumping before he looked, speaking before he thought. But this comes straight from the Father. And Jesus says, watch what Jesus says. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Now this is deep. Are you with me? He says, Bar-Jonah. Why is he saying Bar-Jonah? Because he's saying, look, you are the son of Jonah. But I'm about to change your name. Why? Because it's no longer good enough for you to just operate being where you're from and who are your parents, who are your folks. Now I'm calling you to something far bigger. I'm going to name you as my son. And the name I give you is Peter, the rock. Because of this declaration of faith, you will go forward in strength. Now, it's interesting because Jesus calls the things that aren't as though they were. What does that mean? It means Peter was not the rock yet. How do we know he wasn't the rock? He denied Jesus three times, not far from this. So so stay with me on this. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, yeah, you are right. You know what I find interesting too? You find this when Jesus is first revealed to be Messiah to his disciples. They, They say, to Nathaniel, we found the Messiah. And he says, really, what's his name? Who is he? Jesus. Who are his folks? Mary and Joseph. Oh, Mary and Joseph. I've heard some things about that. I don't know if that's his real dad. Let's just say there's some questions. But then he asks a question back to them. They say, where is he from? And you know what they tell Nathaniel? He's from Nazareth. And then he says, can any good thing come from Nazareth? Why was he saying that? Because Nazareth was despised in that region. Come on, we still do this today. You find other examples in God's word of this. Watch what Titus says. One of them, a prophet of their own, right, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. What is he saying? He's saying, we all know that the world says that Cretans are this way. Come on, don't we have that same thing today still? When people say, where are you from? You say, Beverly Hills. Oh, 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 okay, okay. Manhattan, what part of Manhattan? How about, let's bring it back home. Where are you from? North side of Bastrop? North side, okay. The other side of the tracks, okay. The other side of the tracks, Shiloh? Heard some things about Shiloh. I'm just saying. Right? And and that the way it goes still? I'm from Stony Point. Oh, the Stony. Okay, okay, Stony Point. Cedar Creek. I'm from, isn't that the truth? I'm from East Austin. Oh, now you're high dollar. Before it used to be. Now you you come up a little bit. Isn't that the truth? Or I'm from the new neighborhood on the edge of town. Oh. So he says, oh, you're from Nazareth, the poorest, sorriest region of the whole area. You know what's so interesting? Matthew said he would be, that the prophet said he would come from Nazareth. But no prophet, you can can never find that in the Old Testament, that any prophet actually said that. So was Matthew lying? No, there's two explanations for this. One, there are so many prophets that were never recorded in the Old Testament. 
There's, there are prophets throughout Israel's history, and it was common knowledge that he would be from Nazareth. How do we know it was common knowledge that he would be from Nazareth? Because there's a lot of verses in the Bible that indicate he would be from an area of low repute, that he would be rejected, he would be despised, that he would be maligned. How about the, the psalm that says in Psalm 22, but I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by all people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shout out the lip. They shake the head saying, and they begin to criticize even more. What does the book of Isaiah say? The book of Isaiah says he is what despised and rejected by all men, a, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. These are passages pointing to the Messiah. You say, but pastor, I thought we were supposed to be talking about who am I and if we're supposed to be talking about God being exalted. But here the Bible says, I am a worm talking about the Messiah. Yes, think about this. When he was rejected and he was crucified, did they train him? I mean, did they treat him as a human? Was he treated humanely? Would you say he was treated inhumane? Was he treated like dirt, like garbage? Was he treated like less than human, a worm? It's exactly what the Bible is saying. You'll say, but, but I don't understand. I want to take you even deeper. Are you with me? This summer when I was studying for my prophecy series, I came across this and it just enthralled me that the passage uh, in, 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 in Psalms 22, verse 6, uses a word for worm that's not ordinarily used. The word for worm that's ordinarily used is rimah, and it's defined as maggot or worm, but in 22, the word for worm that's used is towia or tola ata. Tolata. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it exactly right. But this word is different from the previous word I told you about. This word is not just talking about any worm. It's talking about a grub worm and a specific kind of grub worm. It's known as the scarlet grub worm. The scarlet worm, okay? And according to how this scarlet worm works, it only gives birth once in its entire life and then it dies. It climbs up on a tree or a wooden pole. It attaches itself, listen to me very closely, to that pole. It will begin to, to curl up and create a cocoon. At which point, when the, when, the, when the baby worms, I don't know what you call them, the little maggots, the little baby worms, are born, hatched, they feed on the parent's body for three days. When they're big enough to emerge from that cocoon, they break through and a scarlet blood red dye is released. That scarlet blood red dye flows down and marks that tree forever. Not only does it mark the tree, but it marks the baby grubs forever. Therefore, they're known as the scarlet grub. You want to know something else? That once this transpires, the cocoon turns 
a solid white. And in order to remove that cocoon from that, from that piece of wood, you have to break it off, destroying it completely. His body was broken for us. His blood was shed for us. And when you break it, it looks like falling snow or white wool. That's how it's been described. So you say, what does this have to do with anything? Well, the Bible says openly, I am a worm and no man. A reproach of men, meaning I'm going to be treated less than human. But the Bible also says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. And though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Isn't it interesting that even the little worm God created points to the cross? And his word tells you all about it. What does that mean? It means that you have been marked with the blood of Christ and you can't get it undone. You can't undo what he did. You're marked for life. That's who you are. It depicts you and everyone should notice that about you because you are God's son and God's daughter. This is why the Bible says, behold, what manner of love the father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the word does not know us, the world does not know us because it did not know him. The world does not know us because it did not know him. You know what else is beautiful? The Bible says that we were made in his image. In the book of Genesis, it says we were made in his image. We were chosen by him before the foundation of the world. He commanded his love towards us while we were still sinners. And he sees the end from the beginning and he sees something beautiful for you. Beautiful for you. Do you get that deep in your heart? Let me finish it this way. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become what? To become children of God. To those who believe in his name. Now notice what the caveat is. You have to believe by faith in God and then you are reborn and given new identity. Forever. Forever. Let's go back and connect some of the things we've been talking about, okay? Okay? Watch. Jesus says, who does the world say that I am? And then he says, that doesn't matter. Who do you say that I am? Can I tell you, some of you are still asking, what does the world say about me? How many likes do I get on Facebook? How, what, what, what is it that affirms me? Who cares? What's going on in here? Now let's go to Moses. Remember Moses says, who am I? You know what God says? Oh, Moses, you're special. You're really wonderful. You're a great little sheep herder. And I've been raising you up and training you up. And you have more gifts than you would ever know. Does God say that? That might be true. But what does God say to Moses' question when he says, who am I? We're almost done. Are you with me? What does God say? I love this. Watch me. Watch what God does. He goes, anyway, what does it mean when you ask a question and someone ignores it? You ever have a boss do that to you? I've had a boss do that to me. I ask a dumb question, he goes, as I was saying, 
<laughs> you know, and he would just go right on. That was his way of saying, your question's not important. Why is who am I not important at this stage in the game? Come on. This is foundational stuff here. We're building on a hard, strong foundation. Too many of us have started with who am I, and the world is there like Johnny on the spot telling you who you are. The enemy's there like Johnny on the spot telling you who you are. Everyone's there telling you who you are. But God is saying, that's not the important question. Who am I? This is why Jesus says, who am I? Because when you get a good understanding of who am I, then you know who you are. And Moses is saying, who am I? And God is saying, you don't have enough. You don't have enough oomph to get you there. But I do. I am limitless. Think about where our insecurities come from. It comes from our limits. I'm not strong enough. I'm not this enough. Do I have this? And we're always asking, do I have what it takes? Instead of saying, Lord, do you have what it takes? And if I'm with you, if, I be with, if God be with me, then who can be? Do you see what he's saying? And now you have been called a son of God if you believe in him. And we go on to the New Testament that says, the New Testament verse in the book of Acts that says, for in him we live and move and have our being. I'm going to get a little theological here. You know, we talk about being human beings. But let's think about that word being for a minute. Being is a technical word. Do we really have being within ourselves? No. Only God has being within himself. He is the one that's from the beginning. The everlasting one. The ancient of days. And this is when God, when Moses says, who am I? God says, let me introduce you to who I am. Because without me, you wouldn't have breath. Without me, you wouldn't have life. Without me, you wouldn't have opportunity. I am the one that provides it all. Why is that important? Because the New Testament connects this with us. He says, this is, this is Luke talking to the New Testament philosophical mind of the Roman culture, saying he is the unmoved mover. The Greeks understood this. Their philosophers had come to the point where they said, in order for existence to be, for reality to be, there has to be something that is unmoved, that generates the movement for everything else, the power for everything else that is sufficient and, 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 and responsible for everything else. And, and, and Luke says, it's God. And this God is calling you. He's calling you from the fiery bush, from the supernatural, and he's calling you to believe him so that when you believe him, you are in Christ. This is where we finish. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That's belief. You believe God and it's not of yourselves. It's not what you bring to the table. It's what he did at the cross. Watch. Keep going with me. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are the workmanship. In another version, it says we are God's masterpieces created in Christ Jesus for good works. So watch. We live and move and have our being in him. And we have our salvation in him when we believe who he is. And who is he? He is the everlasting God. He is the everlasting God. And watch, in him we are recreated as masterpieces. Notice what it says there, in Christ. In Christ. 
2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, if any man be in Christ, he is a what? You are in Christ. And last but not least, you are out of this world. You are not from this world. How do we know this? Because the Bible says it openly. If you were of this world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of this world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So let's connect a few things and then we'll go home. Who am I? Not as important as who God is. Because when you know who God is, then you can begin to believe him at his word. Do you hear me? It's pastor, but how do I know that it's God? Remember I told you this the other day, Pastor Melissa calls me and I said, hello, who is it? And she says, after talking to me for a few minutes, I said, who is this? And she says, it's me. I said, I have no idea who you are. Who? Who? And she says, it's your wife. I said, Melissa? Oh, y'all believe that? No, that never happened. You know why? Because when my wife calls me, I recognize her voice immediately. Anyone else? Recognize your wife's voice immediately? So this is what God is saying. When you know who I am, then you recognize my voice. And when I call you out of the bush and say, out of the fire, out of the light, out of light, I call you, out of my goodness, I call you, and I give you what? An assignment. Do you realize God gave you an assignment? Watch. It says, for by grace you have been saved. When you believe God, now you are transported in Christ as a son of God. And he says you are a masterpiece created in Christ Jesus to do good works. That means he is calling you as he called Moses, but you might feel inadequate. You might feel like you're not sure, but God is saying, listen to my voice. If you know who I am, then you'll know who you are. If you know who I am, then you'll know you're a son of the living God. You say, but sometimes I don't feel it because you don't know who God is yet. When you believe God at his word, that he is all powerful and that nothing can stop him and he loves you, then you can say, man, I got nothing to worry about. I got nothing to worry about. Amen. So as you grab your communion cup, would you just say, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, Would you help me? To see more clearly who you are. Because as I see you, then I understand who you've called me to be. And as I believe you in faith more and more, then I believe who you've said I am. And that can only be by the power of your spirit. Thank you for new life made possible by the cross. 
we remember the body that was broken and your blood that was shed. We are forever changed in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, I love you.